Welcome to VIV Today. We're the daily business news podcast from the Business and Vancouver newspaper and VIV.com. And I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Tyler Orton. So what does the future hold for the medical marijuana industry? The Canadian Medical Association is calling for an end to two parallel systems, one for medical, one for recreational. This happens when retail cannabis is legalized in October. But Tantalus Lab CEO Dan Sutton, his own company, just received a license to sell medical marijuana last week. He's going to join the show to discuss his views on the future of medical marijuana. And right now, back to school shopping. It's at full tilt. Later on the show, retail insider, editor-in-chief Craig Patterson, he's going to join us to break down what this means for stores. He's also going to discuss some other big news stories going on in the retail world. So there's a range of innovative, disruptive technology that's emerged to provide financial services and systems that conduct transactions and aim for greater efficiency. Hope you'll join us September 13th for BIV's FinTech panel, where we're going to focus on helping small and medium-sized businesses make informed decisions in this new landscape. For more information, go to BIV.com slash events. Should the medical marijuana system be phased out following the legalization of recreational cannabis later on this year? The Canadian Medical Association says doctors no longer need to play gatekeepers once the new system is in place. Joining us today to discuss the future of the medical marijuana industry and more, it's Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs. Dan, great to have you back on the show. Glad to be here. Since you've been here uh, last, you've got uh, you've got more news. You guys always have more news. <laughs> Massive news. So Talents Labs was awarded its sales approval uh, last Friday, which means that in the very short term, we are going to be opening our doors for the first time to be able to accept uh, medical patients initially and also uh, allot some of our production to the recreational stream as well. But we're really looking forward to uh, onboarding our first customers and hopefully delivering them experiences, some of which will be the best they could imagine in cannabis and some of which they could never imagine. That's the closest we can come to a commercial message inside an interview. <laughs> Dallaslabs.com. Check that's it out today. Right, that's right. <laughs> but it is relevant in what we're discussing here today because we have doctors coming out. We have the Canadian Medical Association coming out. And I would assume that uh, you're not necessarily in favor of phasing out the medical side of the industry at this point. But tell us, what does the future hold for this if we have these two parallel systems, one for recreational, one for medical at this point? Right. Well, putting my own self-interest aside, I, I think that the CMA, first of all, it's important to acknowledge that they don't speak for all physicians. There are many physicians in Canada that are huge supporters of the ACMPR, the medical channel through which to access cannabis. And uh, the, the CMA is looking at this from a logistical complexity angle, whereas really what they should be looking at it from is a, is a patient advocacy angle. The ACMPR has done an incredible job for being such a new system uh, populated by, you know, very high degrees of, of government regulation, and then also an inspired group of entrepreneurs in terms of repeatability and consistency in their ability to deliver product to patients at their homes with an unprecedented degree of supply chain transparency, the ACMBR has been an outrageous success. It's very near perfect in terms of being able to actually get patients what they've asked for, what they need, and allow those patients to, to decide with their physician what is the best treatment pathway for them for cannabis. So ultimately, if we are to phase out this system, we better have a better system in place. Some yeah, and I, and I think that the CMA is, is suggesting that that is going to be the case, that there will be a system. Do you see anything that might... Um, well, it might run against that assertion. 
Well, the CMA is relying on unproven hypotheses. They're saying it may be better to distribute through pharmacies. It may be better to distribute through other mechanisms. And we just simply haven't seen any evidence that that can be successful. And it also installs another intermediary into this supply chain in the context of, you know, potentially large pharmacy chains that then need to create margin for themselves. So right now what we have is a direct relationship between patient and ACMPR service provider that allows for the most efficient pricing to be delivered to that end user. And if we add another layer into that for some unperceivable from my angle degree of public health and safety or, or transparency that the ACMPR has clearly proven that they can deliver on, what is the added cost actually delivering in terms of value? So the skeptic who would uh, say that really what what the uh, hazard in this is that with a legalized system, uh, someone will use the medical uh, track in order to purchase a lower cost cannabis supply and frankly be using it either recreationally or providing it to friends to use it recreationally. Is is that any kind of a legitimate fear? The current process that patients in the ACMBR need to go through with their physician is very thorough. Physicians are highly conscious of risk and they appreciate that they need to be able to validate an effective medical reason why this person should be using cannabis in a therapeutic context. And I, I mean, I've interacted with many physicians. We have uh, our, our own digital clinic that allows patients to be actually able to interact with physicians through a, a virtual clinic in, in a digital medium. And those physicians are, are highly conscious that if they give cannabis to somebody who has a risk profile associated with that cannabis use, that is, uh, that is a potential you know, conflict for them and, and could in, even uh, present liability. So I think the doctors are effective gatekeepers in this medical system in the ACMPR. And whether we're dealing with a pharmacy as a distribution point or a digital channel such as an ACMPR website, there's no real uh, reduction of risk that comes with that because ultimately the doctor still has to write that recommendation. Is there a risk if you know, we, we just have a lot of the people within the medical marijuana market segment shift over to the recreational segment and they're essentially self-medicating or, or determining what they should be doing. What kind of risks are they at? Well, that's a, that's an excellent question because with over-the-counter medicines, you know, such as ibuprofen or acetaminophen, you are actually supposed to consult your doctor before you start to take these medicines that are readily available over the counter. Sure. So my question is, if someone wants to use cannabis for a therapeutic reason, they find it more convenient to buy, say, smaller quantities through a storefront retail channel, whose place is it really to judge that they shouldn't be using that cannabis from that recreational channel? It's ultimately, the goal here is to eliminate the black market for cannabis. There are many medical cannabis users that are currently buying from unregulated channels. And the only way to do that the most effectively in my position is to create an omni-channel experience. Whatever the person, however they want to buy, however the patient wants to acquire their cannabis, make it available for them in storefronts, make it available for them in e-commerce, eventually things like delivery systems and smoking lounges. These are great avenues to create convenience for the end user in an unprecedented world of convenience. What I'm uh, still a little foggy about uh, here in uh, into mid-August is uh, what the government's definition is of cannabis uh, in terms of what kind of class of drug or um, recreational um, escape, frankly, uh, it is. Because it, it appears to have leaned heavily over to treating cannabis as if it were another form of alcohol. Therefore, it's, uh, it has the so-called sin taxes uh, applied to it in, in a way. So it isn't treating it like a pharmacological product. It's treating it as, a, as, as kind of a, a recreational escape product. 
That's correct. And, and cannabis is moving away from the CDSA, which is a controlled substances uh, regulatory, uh, I guess, obligation towards now this new Cannabis Act, which does kind of put it in a class of its own. However, if you ask a cannabis user, they've done a, a variety of different surveys on this. If you ask a cannabis user if they contextualize their use as therapeutic, over 90% of cannabis users, recreational or medical, are going to suggest that they derive some form of therapeutic benefit from it. So it clearly does not inebriate the same way that alcohol does. And there are people that are using cannabis in a, I guess, your sort of traditional social context of I want to loosen up, I want to relax, I want to take the edge off at the end of the day. I don't know whose place it is to judge whether or not that's a medical application or a, a recreational application. But ultimately, there are there's a huge body of people that are very concerned around applying syntax to a medicine. And they are certainly making their voices heard and suggesting that taxing medical cannabis for somebody who is a low income individual who's using cannabis effectively to substitute away from other potentially more harmful drugs like opiates. This is happening across Canada today. And does that person deserve to be paying a syntax? I think this is a question that is going to unfold substantially over the next couple of months. But we're not expecting necessarily, uh, for instance, that benefits plans will, um, will essentially provide you with recreational cannabis. Do you? I think it's still yet to be seen whether or not benefit plans will be providing you with medical cannabis. There yeah, are some yeah. companies that have led the charge on that and, and cannabis companies have been a part of that conversation, but I think it's, it's still really early days. And I understand that it's difficult for insurers and for physicians to be uh, attributing therapeutic potential to a drug that has a variety of different psychoactive compounds. I think that's the core thing that's inhibiting cannabis from getting a drug identification. Number. So more studying, more studying, more well, understanding. Canadian way, isn't it? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Slow and steady wins the race. But I mean, my message to patients is give it a try. If you're interested in cannabis, the best thing you can do is dip your toes into it. There are some people that are going to react very poorly to cannabis. They're not going to enjoy it. They're not going to derive any therapeutic benefit and let your brain tell you that. And, and to say that that's actually different than what doctors are doing with a lot of different prescriptions is, is wrong. The best model that we have in a model like pain reduction is to actually ask the patient, what was your pain before you took the pill? Rank it out of 10. What was your pain after you took the pill? So this kind of dip your toes into the shallow end approach is happening all across medicine today. And I think it's perfectly valid uh, with cannabis. Use I didn't know well. you used cannabis by dipping your toes and something. But anyway, it's a whole other thing. <laughs> the, yeah. the topical. Well, if you think of a gold rush, you know, uh, one of the big things that you would do is maybe uh, sell picks and shovels. And we're going to see a lot of these spinoff kind of services going on when the industry becomes legal in October. One of the things that's maybe creating a little bit of controversy are, say, delivery services. We have a startup in Edmonton. They want to be able to pick cannabis up for people, take it to their homes, give it to them right there. Are we going to be looking at a lot of I don't know, legal entanglements going up with this, a lot of uncertainty about where you're going to be you know, offering these kinds of services that are obviously in demand, but don't necessarily meet, I guess, the, the legal requirements here in Canada. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I was able to sit down with uh, Mr. Mike Farmworth last week, and he expressed a lot of concern around the confusion of the legality, you know, what precedents are going to be set. There's a lot of disincentive for governments to be pushing forward on more uh, convenience oriented uh, channels for which through which recreational or medical users can buy. But the point that I think is really clear to make here is that here in Vancouver, we have an elite system of black market delivery services. These guys come to your house, 
dose. They've got cannabis. They might have a host of other drugs. They've got edibles that are unregulated. They have all these products that you don't know where they've come from. And they're with you in 20 minutes. The Dialodope services are running with huge degrees of effectiveness. And even if you were to shut down every dispensary tomorrow, these Dialodope services are virtually unpoliceable. So in my position, the only way to win on that front is to outcompete them. And if uh, a producer like Tantalus Labs can deliver a, you know, a transparent supply chain, demonstrating a clear absence of pesticides, demonstrating a clean product, and we can deliver that service through a convenience level. You know, Services like Uber Eats are blowing up in Vancouver. I could just walk down the street to go get my Chinese food, but it might be more convenient for me to get it delivered to my house. And I don't mind paying a premium for that. The market has demonstrated that they are willing to pay that premium. And so ultimately, I think we need to explore every channel we can in the vision of eroding the black market because those delivery services are not going anywhere. Yeah, because we had the head of the liquor distribution branch on our program uh, on uh, earlier last week. And it, what's very clear is that nobody is under any apprehension that the black market is going to be uh, is going to evaporate on October 18th. Um, it's, it's going to be, though, um, I think a, a pitched battle on a lot of frontiers. And the one I do wonder about, and I think you, you're expressing it well, is the delivery side. Uh, because you know, the apps, the number of apps that you can now download in order to essentially keep yourself furnished uh, in, with, with cannabis is almost staggering. And uh, you can't do that for alcohol. You can't do it. You probably can't do it for cigarettes, frankly. Uh, so, so where where does a government go? Do you think in all of this? Where, where what kind of sanction do they give to delivery services? Do you think? I think that they're going to be somewhat politically misaligned with being seen to be tolerant of cannabis businesses. Like right now, we haven't seen any government body across British Columbia support the facilitation of nascent cannabis industry whatsoever. I mean, we're on the front lines of that. And that's because there's apprehension. They don't want to be seen to more conservative demographic bases being you know, tolerant of drug use, which is totally understandable. But the difference between where we are in the alcohol model now and where we are in the cannabis model is that alcohol does not have a thriving black market, or certainly 90% of alcohol is not sold through a black market. And as a result, people are willing to sacrifice a degree of convenience uh, to be able to go to a store instead of having it delivered to them. And there's just no real other options. The, the fact is in British Columbia with cannabis, there are a ton of other options. And that's what we need to acknowledge uh, as, a, as a political base or as a, as a voting demographic, that we need to be pushing towards a convenience-oriented system that allows people every self-interested motive to stay away from that black market, which is supplying product that has been sprayed with pesticides, that is supplying product that's moldy. And the government does have a public health and safety obligation to grow the legal cannabis uh, industry as, as more as aggressively as they can. Is there, though, a punitive option here, Dan, where, I mean, should government, uh, as of October 17th, look at the dispensaries and say, okay, it's time to shut them down? Maybe they should, but we haven't seen any evidence that they are intending to do that. And I think our policing strategy in British Columbia, which is widely celebrated by British Columbians, is probably on the the liberal side of liberal. I mean, we are not out here kicking in doors of dispensaries. We're not out here shutting down, uh, you know, drug dealers on the downtown east side. And, and maybe we can come at this a bit more from a harm reduction strategy. I think that's totally understandable. But at, at the end of the day, as long as these supply chains continue to exist, they're going to supply end users. So whether we're using market dynamics, which would be my 
preferred mechanism to to create demand for legal products or we're using uh, more punitive strategies, it does need to happen. And I just don't see how the police forces uh, around the municipalities of British Columbia are going to be equipped to shut down what will be a whack-a-mole game of trying to cut off the head of one dealer only to have another come up in their in their stead. Question I'll be throwing at you in the next couple of weeks, Dan. Uh, we're two months out now. What's maybe the, the biggest challenge, biggest concern that a lot of people have right now ahead of legalization? Um, I think we haven't seen a lot of infrastructure being deployed in, in terms of storefronts. If the government is trying to eliminate the black market with e-commerce alone, they have to acknowledge that the ACMPR hasn't done a very good job. There may be 300,000 users of the ACMPR in Canada, many of whom are not very frequent buyers from their chosen licensed producers. So that represents you know, feasibly 10 or 15% of the aggregate uh, cannabis using marketplace across Canada. So ultimately... Uh, I think we're going to need more than one store in Kamloops to be able to supply the uh, the, the Canadian. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> one store in Kamloops. You don't think that'll uh, do the trick for all of BC in the at least the first week? I, I won't be driving to Kamloops to mm. acquire my cannabis. And uh, I personally, because I know that the ACMPR does allow me to dr- deal directly with uh, with my uh, licensed producer and I contextualize my use as therapeutic, I'll probably be dealing directly with a, with a licensed producer as opposed to a, an e-commerce centralized distribution from the BCLBB. And I think there are a lot of British Columbians that are going to elect to do that as well. So that really comes down to the fact that they can't be opening a ton of stores without the supply lockdown. By my estimates, by our internal estimates at Tannelis Labs, we see about 20,000 kilograms that have been committed to the British Columbian uh, Liquor Distribution Board for distribution through BC cannabis stores. That's you know probably 10% of the aggregate market size in British Columbia, which is somewhere between 150,000 and 200,000 kilograms of demand per year domestically that's not you know grown for export grown for sell to other provinces so we have a long way to go in terms of scaling up production that will then allow the bcldb to be consistently and effectively supplying stores but for a uh, a much anticipated launch it is the softest launch i can ever recall. And and we keep coming back to the point that this is version one and that we're going to take some time to eliminate the black market. The black market isn't going anywhere. Well, that is the stated goal of legalization. So whatever we need to do to facilitate industry growth, to be cannibalizing one gram at a time, one user at a time, uh, the people that are buying currently from the black market, that is what we need to be focused on. And the government has been very focused on the mechanics of how we sell. They have not been very focused on the economic development necessary to build a thriving local industry here in British Columbia. And do you think that some of it has to do with just the political reticence that goes into something like this? I mean, if this were, if we were trying to do something militaristically, if we are trying to do something uh, even in a, in a conventional industry in a real hurry, uh, infrastructure, whatever it is, we would be moving at a very different pace, wouldn't we? We absolutely would. And every conversation I have with politicians always comes back to we're worried about getting sued for drug driving laws. We're worried about getting sued by strata councils and all of these things that will, you know, create complications and and political frustration through the process. But there isn't a lot of political incentive to build outside of a two year or four year time horizon. And this really needs to be built with a 10 year vision. We need to understand that this is going to be one of the top three industries in British Columbia, whether it happens in two years or whether it happens in five. And ultimately, some degree of industry facilitation is necessary. Uh, I think an, another 
critique from my perspective is that we have too few minds focused on this problem. This is what happens. This is what comes with the monopoly supply chain. This is what happens with one central distribution body. If we turned entrepreneurs loose on this problem, entrepreneurs that are wanting to get into, into this industry by the hundreds, then we're essentially decentralizing the brains that need to be fi- figuring through these problems. And it would create a lot faster movement from my perspective. Although I, I fear it's a bit of a pipe dream at this point. Yeah. But a, the, the head of the liquor distribution branch, which is now, I guess, the cannabis and liquor distribution branch, he um, talked about also the, uh, the talent pool and, uh, and how he's been trying to swipe people from the industry and is getting them swiped back very quickly. I mean, there, it's, uh, it's almost like the sense of public service that one will have to have uh, in going into, into a public service job as opposed to a private sector job. Well, if, if you are trying to attract talent from the dispensary industry, the unregulated dispensary industry to come into this legal marketplace, it is difficult because these individuals have been working without regulations for a long time. They're not necessarily the most bureaucratically minded individuals. They've also been making a ton of money. Yeah. You know, if I'm making millions of dollars a year and you're offering me 100K a year in salary, I might uh, be reticent to, to forego my even somewhat risky uh, multi-million dollar a year revenue stream. But the talent is out there. It's just a lot of this talent is entrepreneurially focused. Fitting into uh, a cognitive machine bureaucracy paradigm isn't really the sentiment of most cannabis entrepreneurs, whether they come from an unregulated sector like the dispensary owners or or they've transitioned in from from lawful enterprise such as myself, uh, you know, there are people out here that want to build things. They don't want to be coming into a system that's already uh, top-down regulated. They want to be building delivery systems. They want to be building lounges. They want to be building, uh, you know, distribution brokerages. And I think that there's a lot of talent that's very excited about those kind of opportunities, but the only real way to turn them loose is is in a free, more free market paradigm. Well, Dan, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks so much for your time. That's Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs. Joining us next to discuss the latest news in retail is Craig Patterson from Retail Insider. So, Kirk, I was doing my usual errands over the weekend. I went first into a shopper's and then into a buy low. And both instances, I I was totally forgetting about the fact that it's back to school time now because these entire shelves are just filled with like books, backpacks, pencils, you name it. Do you have some nice new pencils? I wish. I I can't afford them, uh, unfortunately. It's uh, no number twos for me this year. (laughs) But uh, we're officially back into back to school shopping season. Do you have a protractor? Yeah, you know, and uh, what, what were those uh, uh, pica sticks uh, pica that I had sticks, back in uh, yeah. journalism school yeah, as well? So, yeah, so. <laughs> but uh, we're in the shopping season for, it's actually the second biggest uh, shopping season right after Christmas here. And we're going to talk a little bit about how online shopping is doing versus, say, brick and mortar retail for all these competition for student dollars here. Yeah, let's get our slide rule out here. I, <laughs> I've got my uh, my uh, TI-30 ready to go to make all the calculations <laughs> for it too. Yeah, so. the Texas instruments. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gadget. But I, I'd like to welcome onto the show Craig Patterson, editor-in-chief at RetailInsider.com, here to give us all his information and his insights on this story as, as well as a lot more going on. And Craig, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. How is uh, how do you think that back to school shopping has changed in recent years? I think it's changed in a few ways. Um, I mean, studies are already showing that parents are spending more online. Uh, I guess looking for deals or just looking for that convenience of online shopping. But also, I think year over year, it's more 
about technology than, you know, perhaps just pens and pencils that uh, our generation would have, uh, you know, I think a calculator was a big expense for us at one time. And I remember over $100 for one seemed outrageous. And uh, times have certainly changed with items over $1,000 now. <laughs> now. Now you get a tablet for $100. Yeah. <laughs> Well, at this point, I'm also curious. So when it comes to shopping, are, are parents reluctant to do the point and click when it comes to clothes? Are, are, are I guess those brick and retail, uh, brick and mortar retail stores, are, are they still doing well when it comes to actually like picking out, you know, what hoodie or, or, or corduroy pants their kids are going to wear? Corduroy pants, yeah. I, yeah. I think <laughs> so. I mean, parents are still overwhelmingly shopping in physical stores. And I think that, you know, for some households, it is that experience of, you know going out and you know with the kids and shopping you know i think it's just a bit of a tradition and i think that you know probably a lot of parents at that age had that themselves so i think that you know they may be passing this down but at the same time though i think definitely uh, you know those that see it easier going uh, online are going to probably you know look at that as well just to save time and maybe even money it is one of those experiences that uh, established boundaries i think with parents and children <laughs> which is you know you either like let loose in which case you, you fill an entire basket with some stuff or you're like, wait a minute, you, you don't need that. You don't need that. And you don't need that. There are so, definitely differences between all the siblings in my family oh, growing yeah. up and uh, like uh, very different expectations between uh, my two brothers and my sister and myself versus what we did. You uh, get shortchanged? Do you feel like you got no, shortchanged? You know what? I, I'm going to say it's absolutely true. I was the oldest. I uh, did not get shortchanged oh, at you, all. You got, yeah. 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 So, oh, but one of the benefits. Parents learn from their mistakes with you. <laughs> exactly. To not, and, and, but Craig, do, do parents, do you think, have the same, um, I don't know, sense of boundary when they're online shopping? It's a good question. I mean, I think it's a different dynamic. It's a little more impersonal, and uh, it's easy to kind of click and buy and not realize it. Uh, <laughs> I, I know this from personal experience. So uh, I, I've accidentally bought a lot of stuff recently, and I think that perhaps, you know, it. Yeah, you know, I think that there is, you know, that lack of physical experience and, you know, the, the ease of a click and payment, especially on, say, something like Amazon, you know, definitely that's going to, uh, uh, you know, potentially, I think, anyways, result in spending more. I have a good friend and she brings cash. She she doesn't, she doesn't uh, bring a credit card to the store at all. She's like, it's whatever, 150. She has her limit. Well, I think it's about $150. Yeah. And she says, that's it. Uh, you know, after that. We're washing dishes, you know, for, to get the stuff. I mean, it, like that's that's just going to be it. it. Which is that's kind of because it, it is, as you point out, it's the second busiest time, and it's a little bit like Christmas shopping. You can let her get out of hand. Yeah, I mean, are there just a lot of financial pressures that parents are under right now that kind of seem unnecessary? Because I I don't know how fast kids are going to grow out of their clothes, or else if like all their pencils are going to be gone within you know three by the months. way 150 was just for supplies for yeah clothing's a whole other sure discussion yeah. yeah these are these are tough times because you know taxes are not that low here in canada uh, the cost of housing and other goods are going up we've got tariffs that are potentially you know going to be increasing some prices and uh, you know car insurance in certain areas is going up it's a tough time to be a parent and uh, I can see why parents would want to try to save as much money as possible or do anything they can just to kind of get by at this point because, you know, incomes have been stagnant and I think in terms of real dollars are less than they certainly were a decade ago and two decades ago. And, uh, you know, all of these, you know, coupled with the uh, expensive technology, which a lot of students are uh, utilizing, it's it's expensive to be a parent these days. Yeah. One thing my friend will tell me is that uh, she is pretty much able 
to go to the store and say, I saw this online somewhere else at this right. price. And everybody is so clamoring to keep the business that the price matching is just wild at this time of year. I, I had luck with uh, Best Buy just a few weeks ago saying, hey, I found it uh, $5 cheaper. Will you match the price? And they're like, yep, sure. Not a problem. Yeah, yeah. So. exactly. Is that typical, Craig? Yes. Uh, well, maybe not for those of us that have too low of a self-esteem that we don't want to be rejected <laughs> by the store. But I mean, that's a great strategy. Uh, my only concern again, though, is that, you know, for some smaller retailers, it's going to be hard for them, you know, marginalized. Yes, to, I agree. To keep up. This is, you know, again, it's survival of the fittest, be it the family that's buying or the retailer that's selling. Yeah, it can be a race to the bottom and, and it can really hurt the little guy. For sure. Yeah. If we're going to talk about online shopping, let's talk a little bit about the Canadian company Shopify, which of course has that e-commerce platform that's proving very popular. And while the company, they actually took it upon themselves to ban the sale of some firearms that were available through its platform. It's not as if Shopify was selling them directly, but their you know clients were using this platform to do so. I don't know. I, it's interesting that Shopify was maybe able to avoid some of the scrutiny that other Canadian companies, we all know Mountain Equipment Co-op was dealing with this issue a few months back as well. Is it surprising that maybe it took them this long to get on with uh, policy change here, Craig? I think it was just even something being brought to their attention. I don't know if uh, Shopify is out policing who's using their platform. I think they're just out to try to you know, create a good platform. And uh, God, I mean, I'm sure there are other controversial businesses that one way that have used Shopify. Because I mean, I know even um, a university that uh, I know people with use Shopify to sell their studies. So mm-hmm. you know, there's all kinds of uh, different things, and obviously not a bad thing or controversial. But uh, you know, all kind businesses of all kinds are using Shopify, and and they may not have even thought about it or, or been aware. I mean, I wouldn't have really thought about it myself until you know someone brought it to my attention. Yeah, it, it's an unintended consequence of a great technological platform. And it, do you think that Shopify benefits overall when it uh, does something like this? Because when I consider how many firearms are purchased online, say in the United States, is Shopify pulling itself out of an area that might be, in fact, very lucrative for it? That's a good question. I'm not an expert in gun retail, which is probably a, not a bad thing. But um, I, I guess the question is, when you buy a gun online, how certified does a person have to be? I actually I don't know that answer. Like, I think if you walk into a store, you need to have some sort of a license or something to have a gun, or at least this is what I would imagine would happen, uh, having never... I've never even seen a real gun, I don't think, other than a police officer. But uh, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, are they shooting themselves in the foot? I mean, Shopify has a lot of customers. Uh, You know, I think the retailers themselves that would be selling the guns would certainly be struggling. But this would be really a handful of clients for Shopify. So, you know, I guess the bigger question is, have they made a political statement that's controversial? And will that cost them money? It's also coming just in the same week that we know that uh, Facebook was dealing with issues of 3D printed handgun schematics essentially being able to be produced there. And they had to swipe those off, take take them off of their platform as well. Are there increasing concerns with tech companies overall just about how, I guess, complicit they could at least be viewed to be, even if it's true or not, just with regards to growing concerns over fire uh, firearms violence quite possibly and again i mean i think it's it's really case by case i think it depends on what position the you know the company wants to take with firearms as well i mean it's such a dicey situation i would have assumed that 
you know, firearms being bad would be a fairly universal thought, I guess. I mean, you know, I guess having grown up in Canada, but in the United States, you know, they feel this is actually against their constitutional rights. So, you know, certainly, you know, the, the, the controversy could be quite extensive here. Yeah, it was just interesting to see how things unfolded with Mountain Equipment Co-op, another Canadian company, and now how another company is doing this. You know, I can later. see Mech doing this uh, for um, for its own political purposes, its philosophy, its yeah. ethics in, in all of this. Shopify, though, I, I don't necessarily yet associate with that. So it's, I think it's a bit of a bold statement on their part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's uh, talk a little bit about something closer to home uh, here, Craig. We had TNT Supermarket. They just opened its largest store ever this month here in Richmond over at Lansdowne Center. It's 70,000 square foot, feet of you know Asian grocery shopping there. What is the appeal of TNT? I like popping in. There's always cool stuff in there that I, I can't typically find at maybe my local Save-On or Safeway. Why is it doing so well right now? I think that's just it. Uh, they've got a product offering that seems to be popular with uh, its customers, be they uh, Asian customers or otherwise. Uh, DNT actually does very well in some of their locations. I know that, for example, their West Edmonton Mall location does something like over $50 million a year in sales, and that's in a 55,000-square-foot store. So translating, you know, to about $1,000 a square foot in sales, you know, in a, in a, in a fairly, you know, in a market that's very mixed, that's quite remarkable. I'm curious how their other stores are doing, but I'm sure that's, you know, others, uh, like I think the one in downtown Vancouver is doing extremely high sales as well. Yeah, when I've gone into that one, that's the one I, I'll go into. Um, uh, what what impresses me, of course, is not just that it's uh, an Asian clientele, uh, but that it's for other Vancouverites who want to find uh, specialized uh, uh, foods, spices, uh, uh, ingredients of some sort, utensils even. Um in the case of TNT, what I what I think it's provided is almost like a um, uh, a facsimile of a supermarket back home for people, and we all like that when we go to another place. We we want to feel like there's a there's a homebody type of um, environment in order for us to shop. TNT's done pretty well at that. I agree. I think uh, it's kind of like Jollibee, you know, the Filipino <laughs> restaurant chain, right. but they yeah, say yeah. a taste of home. And uh, But, you know, it's interesting because I think TNT transcends just, you know, Asian shoppers, certainly. I mean, I'm a customer of TNT mm-hmm. the odd time here and there as well if I'm in the area. So, you know, I just appreciate the fact that it's not, you know, your typical boring store that I grew up with. So I, I kind of enjoy it. So I think that a lot of people are in the same boat. They're able to get specialized products. And I think that's why, you know, certain ethnic grocery stores... Uh, do very well, or specialty grocers, you know, be it organic or otherwise. I mean, they're catering to a niche population that's looking for something different one way or the other. Yeah, as as our uh, population shifts here in this city, um, what I wonder about is why the the existing chains, the traditional called traditional chains, have not moved themselves as aggressively over to that to, to that product line. I mean, it, you see a shelf of some sort, right. a small section, a part of an aisle. But you don't see Craig the the full on section of the of the store. No, I think you're right. I mean, I know that I was in Edmonton a while ago, and uh, a local superstore, you know, which is part of the Loblaw Group, which is also part of TNT, was carrying certainly some TNT products and had you know sort of a dedicated area. Uh, but it was not that big. It was really, you know, just a few products on a shelf for, you know, different quote unquote ethnic cooking. But um, I noticed the TNT products and I thought, well, you know, this is great. I mean, you know, <laughs> Loblaws, Shoppers, Drug Mart, TNT, it's got almost every brand, including a lot of private label. Well, 
I have one last question for you. What do you think of the fact that this is now the third location in Richmond? It's 70,000 square feet. Is there any risk of perhaps oversaturating that particular market? Or is, I guess, just the, the diversity within the city of Richmond going to be enough to propel this company into, I guess, a lot more success? Oh, I'm not really worried about TNT. I mean, Richmond has, uh, you know, very, very, uh, you know, Asian population. There's no question there. It might be the highest percentage wise in the country. If not, it's pretty close. A couple of suburbs of Toronto are really high too. I think 82% in Richmond Hill. So that's <laughs> pretty hard to beat that. No, I mean, you know, grocery stores only need a certain number of people to survive. Uh, there are a lot of other grocery stores in Richmond as well, uh, you know, of uh, different types. So TNT, they're just three grocery stores out of many uh, food retailers. I'm not... Uh, Concern. My my actual concern, though, is how long are they going to be able to keep that store there? Because I know at some point, Lansdowne Center is going to be demolished. But I mm-hmm. think that the landlord, you know, may build them a new store. I'm sure there's some sort of an agreement somewhere there. Well, excellent, uh, Craig. Always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. That's Craig Patterson, editor in chief of RetailInsider.com. 